You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Welcome to First Look, Washington Post Live's one-stop shop for news and analysis. I'm Jonathan Capehart, Associate Editor at the Washington Post. Well, the results of a summer special election in Ohio this week that would have had major implications for abortion rights in that state produced a thunderclap in national politics as voters overwhelmingly rejected an effort to change the rules for ballot referenda. Joining me now to talk about why the Biden White House is smiling about this, Tolu Olorunipa, White House Bureau Chief for The Washington Post. Tolu, welcome back to First Look. Hey, Jonathan, it's great to be with you. Sorry about the technical issue earlier. Before we get to why the Biden White House is happy, let's talk about what happened. The rule change that Ohio voters rejected would have required 60% of the popular vote to change the state constitution instead of the simple majority right now. You reported earlier this week that the overwhelming rejection of this move may give Democrats a roadmap to victory next year. How so? Um, Yes, Ohio is uh, something that Democrats across the country are celebrating and definitely in the White House at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. They're uh, popping champagne over those results. Ohio is a state that has been elusive for Democrats. It's been trending away from Democrats for several years. Uh, Former President Trump won it by 8% in uh, 2020. And the fact that uh, Democrats, uh, essentially their position won out in this referendum, which happened during a sleepy summer uh, vote that Republicans sort of chose because they thought lower turnout would happen and they'd be able to sneak this thing through. Uh, Instead, we saw high turnout. We saw people in the suburbs voting against this referendum, which happened to be sort of a proxy vote on uh, this upcoming referendum that's coming up in November over abortion. Republicans wanted to increase uh, the the threshold that uh, these uh, various voters have to cross six up from 50% up to 60%. And voters said, no, they did not want to increase the threshold to change the constitution in o- Ohio to enshrine the right to an abortion. That's uh, that that's a vote that's going to happen later this month or later this year. And it's very clear that uh, when it comes to these abortion referenda, when it comes to this issue, Democrats have the wind at their back and they're able to get crossover appeal and win over uh, Republican votes, moderate votes, votes that they haven't been able to win and other on other issues. And it makes it very clear that uh, Democrats feel strongly about this issue and that this issue is going to be a winner for them, not only this year, but also next year. Another hurdle uh, on top of the the sort of supermajority that um, this would require, also getting signatures. Right now it's 44 counties, 44 Ohio counties. They wanted to bump it up to all 88 Ohio counties, which would make it virtually impossible. So you laid out uh, sort of the, the the foundation of my next question, that being that this was Ohio is a state that Trump won by eight points in the last presidential election in 2020. So how have things changed politically since Roe v. Wade was overturned last June? Well, we've seen red states, red states, uh, states that uh, normally vote Republican vote strongly in favor of abortion rights. We've seen that happen in Kansas. We saw it happen in Kentucky. Even Montana uh, uh, also is in that group. And it's clear that when it comes to these votes, putting these votes before the public, before voters, uh, makes it very clear that the polling is clear. People, uh, even in red states, do not approve of what happened at the Supreme Court last year. They are unhappy about it. They are motivated and energized by it. And Democrats are trying to figure out how to key into that to try to win some of these broader elections that they have. Uh, and they're putting ballot initiatives uh, on uh, the, the ballot in places like Florida and Arizona to try to uh, capitalize on this energy that they are, are seeing around this issue that they haven't seen around other issues, even issues like 
gun control and uh, tax uh, increases and raising the minimum wage uh, have not had the same kind of crossover appeal and consistency of success that Democrats are seeing around abortion. And so they're trying to figure out how to tap into this energy and make it so it's not just this one issue, but that uh, they're broad broadening their base and winning over some of these moderate voters uh, for, for the long term. I mean, I don't think it's it, it, it's a hard thing for them to do. This issue, to your point, this issue is one that crosses crosses party lines, cultural lines, socioeconomic lines. But you know, you you said a moment ago, you know, they're popping champagne at, at the White House over the Ohio results, and the president, President Biden, released a statement Tuesday night praising the vote. And here's what he said. Uh, he said, Ohio voters rejected an effort by Republican lawmakers and special interests to change the state's constitutional amendment process. This measure was a blatant attempt to weaken voters' voices and further erode the freedom of women to make their own health care decisions. That is from, from President Biden. Um, you've talked a little bit uh, about you know, what the Biden campaign is going to do to capitalize on, on this what uh, Democrats writ large are going to do to capitalize on this. But conservatives also watch the Ohio vote closely. And I'm wondering, do they view the defeats in Ohio and Kentucky and Montana and Kansas with alarm, or will they double down and use them to fire up, or at least try to fire up, the evangelical wing of the Republican Party? Well, there's a big split within the Republican Party right now over these results in these various states. There are some, especially in the pro-life movement, that say the reason that we're losing these races is, is because we're not being strong enough. We're, we're sort of trying to hide our position. We're sort of taking this ostrich uh, stance where we're putting our head in the sands and not fighting Democrats on their turf over the issue of, of life, over the issue of things like late-term abortions. And so they are encouraging the party to continue to move to the right on this issue. But then you have some more moderate Republicans who are looking at these results and saying, we've got to do something differently. If we're losing in states like Ohio and Kansas, then it's clear that this is a political loser for us and we do not need to be focusing on this. Let's focus the attention back on Joe Biden, back on his low approval ratings, talk about things like the economy and inflation, where we're able to win over voters and not talk so much about these cultural issues, not talk so much about uh, pro-life issues. And it's a big split in the party. They're trying to figure out which way they're going to go. And we're going to see on the, de the debate stage at uh, the Republican presidential primary in a couple of weeks where this debate is going, in part because a number of these presidential candidates are going to have to make their stance very clear on where they stand on a national abortion ban, which is a big litmus test within the Republican primary right now. Is the, is the White House sort of champing at the bit to go after, say, someone like Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida, who just this year, just a few months ago, signed into law a six-week abortion ban in Florida. Something, if memory serves, and correct me if I got this wrong, um, something that Donald Trump is even against. Yeah, uh, Trump said that uh, that was a bit harsh to uh, push for such a law in Florida. Uh, the White House is trying to capitalize on this. They are dispatching Vice President Kamala Harris across the country to make this issue uh, relevant to a lot of voters. She's traveled to more than 16 states uh, in the past year to highlight this issue. She's gone, gone down to Florida specifically. She's gone to Iowa at, at the time that other Republican presidential candidates were 
in the state trying to uh, you know put pressure on them to make their their stance clear and and make it clear that uh, where they stand is different from where a lot of the voters in the country stand. And so I do expect, even though the Dobbs decision by the Supreme Court happened more than a year ago, the White House and specifically Vice President Harris to be focusing on this issue for the months ahead and to be making it relevant for a lot of voters and not allowing it to fade with the news cycle. I do think this is going to continue to be a top issue, not only for this year, but also deep into next year before we get to the 2024 presidential election. Oh, yeah. Anyone who, I mean, last year, I remember hearing people say, oh, well, the Supreme Court decision is not going to have any kind of impact. It hit too soon. It hasn't the salience of inflation and, and high gas prices. And I was like, y'all not paying attention. But I bring that up because the moment the leak of the Dobbs draft hit last April, um, and then the decision, well, yes, when the Dobbs draft came out, Vice President Harris told me and has said in other interviews that that's when she told her staff, her staff, quote, I'm getting the blank out of town and barnstorming the country. She's been doing it for more than a year and a half. Um, real quickly, in the time that we have left, is Vice President Harris and her um, being out there and talking forthrightly about this issue in a lot, in some ways, the White House's secret weapon? She can talk about this issue in ways that former President Joe Biden or current President Joe Biden can't and put pressure on people like former President Donald Trump over the fact that Trump put three new Supreme Court justices on the bench. And even as he talks about how, you know, the Florida law might be too harsh and he tries to moderate his position, Democrats are putting pr Trump under pressure by saying, if you had not appointed three justices who uh, voted to overturn Roe v. Wade, then we wouldn't be in this situation right now. And so you are going to see Vice President Harris continue to press that case against Trump, against the other Republicans uh, on that debate stage uh, by taking this uh, battle across the country, traveling to different states, traveling to some of the states where the Republican primary is happening to show that this is an issue that's going to continue to be a top issue for uh, Democrats going into the 2024 race. Uh, you know, Joe Biden has all kinds of uh, you know, policies that he wants to be talking about, including the economy. Uh, but when it comes to this uh, abortion issue, when it comes to a woman's rights to choose, uh, Kamala Harris has been uh, a key ambassador for the administration in pressing this case and making this, uh, this debate happen in various parts of the country. Tolu Olarunupa, White House Bureau Chief for the Washington Post, as always. Thank you for coming to First Look. Have a good weekend. Thank you. We'll go to the Opinions Roundtable and continue the conversation in just a moment. Let's go to the opinion side of the Washington Post, where we will find Washington Post Associate Editor and Columnist Ruth Marcus and Washington Post Columnist George Will. Ruth, George, welcome back to First Look. Good morning. So, Ruth, starting with you, that Ohio vote, um, is abortion rights the galvanizing issue for Democrats heading into the 24 election? Well, Jonathan, I think I have to fess up because I was one of those people you were just making fun of that was wrong about how salient the issue was going to be um, back in the day, um, also known as two years ago. Uh, and so I'm real. I'm so gratified to be have been wrong about that. I'm so gratified to keep up. I'm uh, with the program now in the sense that I do think this is a, a galvanizing issue, perhaps not the galvanizing issue, but for a segment of voters, 
for a segment of voters, especially in key battleground states, it is something that cannot, it can do two things. It can get Democrats to the polls who might have otherwise sat on their um, behinds, like, you know, amazing turnout in Ohio in this off-off special election. Um, but it can also attract moderate independent voters, maybe even some Republicans to break ranks. So that's a, a very, it's a, the Dobbs decision was a loss for America. It was a loss for the women of America, but it was a kind of the silver lining such as it is. And this would not be my trade-off, but it was a win for Democrats. And, and George, I would love your thoughts on this, but also, you know, given the results out of Ohio after similar results in Kentucky and um, Kansas and Montana, are Republicans making a mistake by continuing to try to or succeed in restricting abortion rights? First, as to Dobbs, I, I would think uh, Madam Justice Marcus would say thank you to the Supreme Court for the Dobbs decision, which has done exactly what many of us wanted to do, which was restore this fraught public issue to public debate. It was a win not for Democrats, as Ruth says, it was win for democracy. And that seems to me the country's been much healthier to have the post-Dobbs debate. What Democrats are going to do in 2024 is what Republicans did 20 years before that. In 2004, they got in, I think, about 11 states. They had referenda put on the ballot uh, outlawing same-sex marriages. I think all 11 passed. They generated... Uh, had the, the intent and the effect of pulling conservatives to the polls, uh, might have helped, uh, one of them was in Ohio and might have helped George W. Bush, the incumbent president, carry Ohio and thereby uh, get a second term. Today, none of those uh, 11, I think, would pass in those states. That issue has been settled. So, so, but, but the Democrats think they can replicate this using abortion in 2024. There's already a move afoot in one of the eight or so swing states that, are, that will settle the election in Arizona to get uh, a measure on the ballot that Democrats hope uh, reasonably will similarly energize their base. Uh, so what goes around comes around in 2024, maybe 20, uh, sort of the reverse of 2004. Justice Marcus, do you have a reaction? I thank you for the promotion, George, but I'm going to dissent from the bench. And I was thinking about what we we're going to talk about this morning, and I've been waiting to make this point. I think that the results in Ohio and Kansas, in all, all the states that have uh, where voters have expressed their unhappiness with the Dobbs decision, I think those are very gratifying but they are not examples of why it was a good idea to leave this to the democratic process. The examples of why it was not a good idea to leave this to the democratic process are the women who don't have access to abortion and have no prospect real realistically of having access to abortion in Texas, in Mississippi, in Alabama, in Florida, people who have been forced to carry to term pregnancies that they did not want to have. And so just as with same-sex marriage, leaving this to the democratic process and the vagaries and whims of majorities in states was a bad idea. It's why it, women's reproductive freedom is, and in my view, should be enshrined in the constitution. 
um, and why Dobbs' decision, no matter what the fallout and salience is, um, was really a tragedy for women in America, as I've said before. So thanks for that mm -hmm. dissent, George. Well, well, one more thing on that, Ruth, because I think the dif the difference to my mind between the um, same-sex marriage example used by George and what we're talking about in terms of Dobbs is that Dobbs took away a right, a constitutional right, um, and same-sex marriage, those bans that were put in place were proactively put in place to try to stop something that the Supreme Court eventually ruled was a, a constitutional right. And one other thing, it's not just, you know, um, women's access to abortion. More to your point, Ruth, it is the ancillary effects of the Dobbs decision on women being able to make healthcare decisions that go beyond, you know, carrying to term uh, 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 a fetus um, that either they weren't prepared for, didn't didn't want, or um, medically can't carry to term. Some of these stories are really, really um, hard uh, to to read. But I want to switch gears here and um, talk more about the 2024 presidential race on the Republican side for the nomination. Um, the Post did a lot of reporting about Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and his firing of his campaign manager as he continues to look to find some kind of momentum in his presidential race. George, why is he not catching fire the, as an alternative the way a lot of people thought he would? People don't warm to him. They don't seem to like him. Uh, he might be a, a wine that just doesn't travel. You know, Americans complain about our long presidential campaigns and our uh, some of our overseas friends ridicule us for them, but uh, they're supposed to be protracted stress tests. Uh, we're going to be stuck with the winner of this 2024 campaign for four years, during which he or she is going to have the ballistic missile nuclear launch code. So we really ought to try and get this right. And uh, if it turns out that Mr. DeSantis has a, a kind of truculence and a misjudgment about the mood of the country, we ought to find that out early on and, and move on to someone else. I should say at this point, my ritual disclosure that my wife uh, is part of the Senator Tim Scott's presidential campaign. But uh, so far, it seems to me, Mr. DeSantis has been running to be president, not just of Iowa, but of a portion of Iowa, which is uh, the evangelical portion of Iowa, which is not representative probably of Iowa and certainly not of the country as a whole. It's a standard problem for both parties that they have to sneak by the base in order they, to, to get to the general election without having so compromised themselves in the sneaking by of the base that they can't address the larger country. Uh, Mr. DeSantis has gone all in on pleasing the base, and time will tell whether he overdid it. So then, George, given given that uh, assessment, if because and I'm asking this because you you disputed the in a recent column the inevitability um, of Trump being the nominee, and you predicted that neither Trump nor DeSantis will get the Republican nomination. So who will? Well, uh, the voters will have a say in this, uh, and uh, I, I do think, leaving my disclosure and my 
uh, wife's interest in this aside, I think uh, Tim Scott is probably the hardest for the Democrats to run against. I think he's got one lane to himself. That's the cheerfulness lane. Uh, he thinks America is not going to hell in a hot hand cart. He does not dwell on what Mr. Trump called American carnage in his inaugural address. Uh, I, I think Nikki Haley is campaigning uh, with great energy and great seriousness. Uh, I think uh, the governor of North Dakota, Mr. Bergram, is, uh, will get and deserves another look. A lot of good candidates out there, but the real contest is to be number two. Uh, there's a poll out that in, in Iowa yesterday that showed that DeSantis has lost nine points, that he's two points ahead of Scott, which means he's in a statistical tie. So as soon as possible, the anti-Trump people want Trump to face one person. And there'll be enormous pressure on laggards to get out and uh, make that come to pass. Who that one person will be remains to be seen, but there are four or five very good candidates for that. So Ruth, I'd love your your thoughts on this, but in particular, putting back on your justice hat, um, he, Governor DeSantis, again, I should have worn my robes this morning. <laughs> Sorry, Jonathan, but I was saying I should have worn my robes this morning. <laughs> I mean, we've got time if you want to go run and put them on as I ask this question. So listen, Governor DeSantis, again, suspended a Democratic state attorney in Florida on Wednesday, saying he was, quote, clearly and fundamentally derelict, oh, not he, she, in her duty. Uh, what's this about? Um, what's the threshold for a governor to remove from office an elected official? Um, it should be really, really, really high. And this is a um, conservative prosecutor, liberal prosecutor. Um, this is actually where I think the will of the voters absolutely, 100% absent clear impeachable offenses. I don't know what the other avenues are for removing um, people from elected office in Florida, but um, should be left to the voters to decide they elected her. They elected the previous prosecutor who was a liberal prosecutor that DeSantis removed or tried to remove. And this is just um, risky business, risky and dangerous business on either from, from a liberal governor or a conservative governor shouldn't happen. Let's talk about um, Donald Trump and his legal woes in a column you wrote, Ruth, um, where, uh, well, um, the special counsel, I should say, in terms of news, has requested a trial date of uh, January 2nd for the election fraud portion of the special counsel's investigation. And your, your column sort of laid out Trump's likely legal strategy against the four charges, the four felony counts against them. What are they? Well, his biggest legal strategy is actually delay. Um, that's kind of baked into the cake and that's what the whole game is gonna be. He, for obvious reasons, does not want this trial to happen before the election. He wants to have it to happen after the election when he hopes he will be president or perhaps another Republican will be president and they can drop the prosecution or pardon him or self-pardon if it comes to that. And, um, and so the legal strategy is really a run out the clock strategy. Uh, it's very clear that Judge, that Jack Smith, the special counsel, 
um, doesn't want to see that happen. It's very clear that Judge Chutkin is interested in moving this case along briskly. And I want to say we usually talk about speedy trial rights as a right of the defendant to get his or her trial in a timely fashion, but there's also a public interest component to the speedy trial. And that's what prosecutors were arguing when they asked for this really pretty aggressive and quite soon trial date. See, you know, see you in court in January, Mr. Trump. I'm not sure I think January is going to happen, but I do think they have an important public interest argument. We do not want this question of whether the, I hope George is right and he won't be the nominee, but whether the leading candidate for the Republican nomination now is um, going to be a convicted felon or a, a soon to be convicted felon. Um, the other arguments, because I don't want to filibuster here, um, that Trump is going to raise are all legalistic. Um, they have to do with the sufficiency of the various counts and mostly um, whether prosecutors are going to be able to prove the requisite intent on Mr. Trump's part. And those are all going to, it's important for people to understand, they are going to probably have to wait for a trial, for um, a conviction if that happens, and for an appeal. So buckle up, everybody. Wow. We, we only have a couple minutes left, so I can't ask the detailed question, <laughs> follow-up question I was going to have in terms of proving you, whether he really You can call me after, Jonathan. <laughs> call me later. We can talk. The, more for the audience, because I'm sure they want to know this too. George, in now the 90 seconds that we probably have left, your, your thoughts on, on either what Ruth had to say or on Trump's legal jeopardy? Well, two things. First of all, the mills of justice always grind slowly in the United States. And as Ruth says, uh, Mr. Trump has an incentive to make them grind even slower. There's in Dickens' Bleak House, there's a case called Jarndyce v. Jarndyce that's become a byword for litigation that never ends. And there, there are enough problematic matters in these cases brought against Mr. Trump to make this last forever. Not, I'll just take one, and that is that Ruth Tutson. They have to talk about, did he have a guilty mind, Trump? They have to, did he believe the lunatic things he was saying? And the more lunatic they are, the more it is possible plausibly to say he couldn't have believed that. But, uh, or maybe they're so lunatic that he must believe it or he wouldn't have said it. I mean, we're, we're, I, I don't know what to do about the labyrinth of his mind, but the lawyers are going to spend a lot of time in it. I mean, could he claim, I mean, and I ask this in all seriousness, could he claim insanity? <laughs> no. Uh, the insane can't claim insanity. Uh, uh. His lawyers would have to do that in his behalf, and they would have to do that, um, I think, with his acquiescence, and I don't think we're going to see that. No. I, I am I am glad I asked that question um, because and, and you guys took me seriously because I did I seriously wondered this is maybe his little catch catch twenty two uh, Ruth Marcus George Will as always thank you both very much for coming to First Look have a good weekend you, you too. too thanks for listening for more information on our upcoming programs go to WashingtonPostLive.com. <laughs>